couple uh, things to uh, pray about before we get into the message today. Um, I always rejoice when we see Pastor Keith Maddie come back into our fold from Cuba. If you're uh, my age, maybe a little bit younger than me, or certainly older than me, you hear people going to Cuba and you think, I hope they come back again. <laughs> and Keith, very glad you're here and glad you get a minister. And looking forward, I'm sure on a, on a Wednesday night, we're going to hear um, how God used you down there. And praise, praise the Lord for your ministry down there. And we'll keep praying for Mark. I had told him earlier in the week he was doing a really good Barry White impression, and uh, he, didn't, he didn't get any better. So uh, continue to pray for his healing. And then be praying for, continue to pray for Vicki Mattingly losing her mom um, earlier this week. Uh, pray for comfort for the family and pray for, for those that hear the gospel, hear the gospel at the funeral, that they would repent and turn, put their faith in Christ. So let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice that Pastor Keith both went to Cuba and made it home. We rejoice as well, Lord, that the gospel went forth in a country that for many of us, we think, oh, scary communism, 60s and 70s. But Lord, you are allowing your word to go forth in a greater and greater and greater way. And Lord, we ask, we plead that you will continue to do so and continue to do it in a greater way. And Heavenly Father, we also pray for comfort for Vicki, for Joe and Mackenzie and the extended family as well. Um, Lord, we pray that um, relatives of theirs, friends of theirs that might have questions about eternity, we'll be able to talk with them and we'll come to Christ. And Lord, there's lots of different things in life that are challenging. But we know that ultimate hope and comfort comes in you. And for that, we are so thankful. Give us understanding at this sermon of Paul's today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, when I preached a, a funeral sermon earlier this, this week in Madisonville, one of the things that I said to the congregation was be instructed by the person that had passed away. I said a couple things. I said, one, you need to laugh and talk and cry and rejoice and sorrow. Those are healthy, healthy things. We can't define for someone how to sorrow, but don't be afraid to talk about it if you feel like talking about it. If you don't, that's totally fine too. And the second thing I told them was be, in, be instructed. And I think in a general sense, that's a really healthy thing to do. And, and we, can, we can learn things from a person, both from, from good and bad, from strengths and weaknesses. And I think one of the reasons I enjoy biographies, I enjoy reading about other things, I, I like reading memoirs. One of the reasons I enjoy that is I'm, I'm instructed. You hear what someone's going through. You see what, what, how someone dealt with something. I especially as a pastor like reading of pastors that are, that are long dead and seeing, you know, how did they handle the circumstance? How did they do this? How did they respond to this or to that? Yeah, I've read about a little bit would be Robert Murray McShane, who was a Scottish pastor in the early 1800s. He was born in a, a really a well-to-do family, lots of servants. His dad was an attorney. They were very, very uh, well off. He was extremely smart. Started high school at age eight. All a bunch of slackers compared to him. Started high school at age eight, was getting an advanced degree when he was 14. 
Um, at age 22, he has his graduate degree and became a pastor. He wrote poems and hymns and theological works, and he ministered to hundreds of people. He was known as the saintly McShane because he was so serious about knowing God and representing God. Um, one of his favorite themes was redemption, the theological fact that sinners that were in bondage to sin can be freed. And they can be freed not because they can do this or they can do that, but they are freed because of the work, because of the blood of Christ on the cross. One of his famous poems has been turned into a song called When This Passing World Is Done, and some of you will know this. It's, a, it's an old one, but let me just read a couple stanzas of this. And he's talking about when this passing world is done, and he's actually referencing final redemption. He's been talking about being redeemed, being bought out of bondage. And he says, but there's going to be a future time when I will be finally and completely redeemed, when there will be no sin, no sorrow, when I will see myself, and I will see my Savior as he truly is. When this passing world is done, when has sunk yon glaring sun, when we stand with Christ on high, looking o'er life's history, then, Lord, shall I know, not tell then how much I owe. It says, when I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own. When I see thee as thou art, lovely, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not tell then, how much I owe. He rejoiced, McShane rejoiced, that a sinner like himself could find forgiveness, not because of his own merit, but because of Jesus. So today we're going to see another redemption story. Uh, Joe read it for us already, but we're going to be digging into Acts 13, the sermon that Paul preached on the first missionary journey. We're going to look at kind of the, the historical search for an answer. We've got a problem. It's called sin. What is the answer? And there's a historical search. And there'd be, be those out there, hey, this guy's going to fix things. Oh, wait, this guy's going to fix things. Hey, this woman is going to fix things. And we're going to see repeatedly that they could not and did not. We're going to see God's provision of the true and real answer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, we're going to see an invitation to receive that answer, and we're going to see some various responses to that offer. Um, I would call this a bit of a bridge sermon. So we've been, uh, Pastor Mark has been preaching through Exodus, and we've been, seen, been seeing God working in Exodus. You know, right after Exodus, you could be getting into Leviticus and then Deuteronomy, and they, they really fit well together. At the end of Deuteronomy, um, Moses dies. He looks into the land, but he can't go into the land. Moses dies. And that's about the year 1400 BC, about 1400 years before the time of Christ. And, and um, then you get into um, the book of, uh, you can get into the gospel. So you get into Mark and we have John the Baptist speaking about the year 25, about, about 25, about 30 actually years after um, I guess it'd be 27 years about after uh, Christ's birth, and John the Baptist is speaking there. So this is kind of a, a bridge sermon where it's going to talk about that 1,400 years in there, and we're going to be seeing these delivers and seeing God's answer. And the, the question that could be asked is, what happens in those 1,400 plus years? There's kings, and there's prophets, and there's wars, and there's disease, and there's death. And is it just the circle of life? Like we just keep on going, and we just, you know, 
we just keep on going and people are born and people die and people are born and people die and it's meaningless and there's no answer or what is going on there? We're just taking up space on earth for a few years. I think many of us would answer and the Bible would answer, no, there's a plan and it's God's plan. It's God's plan of reconciling man to himself and it's a story of redemption. So let's start in Acts 13 and let's look at a little bit of history as a search for an answer says in verse 13, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And I think there's a map behind me. You can see they, they go from Antioch and they travel down. They go to Cyprus and they travel up. And they're going into kind of the, the central bottom part of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. That's the point. The infamous and John or John Mark left them at that point um, and returned to Jerusalem. But they went from there and they came to Antioch in Pisidia. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, which would be a normal thing for them to do at that time in the synagogue, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word, if you have any sermon for us, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his right hand. And for us, that'd be pretty strange if, if we just met here today and we said, Hey, uh, hey who's preaching today? Even with me replacing Mark because he got sick. Hey, who's preaching today? I don't know. We'll see kind of who, who wanders in the back. Hey, do you have a word for us? You know, if you've ever been in a church where something happened, all kinds of different things could happen. At a time when there wasn't the commu communication that we can have today, uh, that was a pretty normal thing for Jewish, Jewish men to be traveling around, and they might be giving a word of encouragement, might be doing some preaching and teaching at various churches. Oftentimes, they might have paperwork, or they would say, hey, I studied under this guy, kind of have some credentials and they would share the word, and it kept some cohesiveness in these very spread out areas. So that's what Paul is doing there, um, and he starts to give a speech, and his speech is really, or a sermon, either one you want to call it speech or sermon, pretty similar to Stephen's uh, sermon in uh, Acts chapter 7. Um, a, a difference would be, um, Stephen talks about Israel's leaders, but he really condemns them. He says, hey, these leaders of Israel, they have not been leading as they should. Um, Paul does it a little bit differently. He says, hey, there's some things we can be thankful for. Now, it, it points to something greater, but there's some things that we can be thankful for. But other than that, they have some real similarities between the two. Um, and he goes on. He says, hey, men of Israel. So he's speaking to Jewish people. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God. Those would be Gentiles that are in process of converting, sometimes called proselytes says, listen, the God of, our, of this people Israel, so I'm going to tell you a little bit of history. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Exactly what Pastor Mark's been preaching on. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. And when he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom God testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. And he says that 450 years, so you go about... About 400 years of, of mostly slavery in Egypt for the nation of Israel. You've got 40 years of wilderness wandering, and then you've got about 10 years of conquering the land of Canaan. That gets our 450 years. 
And then he, he, he brings up a few people. He, he kind of alludes to Moses and Joshua in speaking of some history. Then he talks about Saul. He talks about Samuel first, then Saul. And then he talks about David. Well, what's he saying here? He's saying, here were those that were to deliver. Here were those that were to be the answer. But you Jewish people understand his audience, and I understand, he as a speaker would be saying, they had shortcomings. They had failures. And we could look at Moses that Pastor Mark's been talking about, and we say, wow, here's how he led them out of the Exodus. Here's how he led them across the Red Sea. Here's the wilderness wandering. We have some failure too, right? We have some lack of trust in God at times. We have some God saying, speak to the rock and it'll gush forth water. And he's angry and he strikes the rock. And God says, you're not going to be going into the kingdom. So we have a deliverer, an answer in Moses who falls short. Which leads us to Joshua, Joshua and Caleb. But Joshua's conquering Canaan. But the conquering, is it 100% complete and they conquered everything that God said to conquer? He was incomplete. He was a deliverer, but there were still Canaanite nations. So we fall short. It takes us to the, the time of the judges. And I know one of the adult Sunday school classes spoke and studied on the judges today. And you have these judges that they're lifted up. Hey, this guy is the answer. Here's Gideon. Here's Barak. Here's Deborah. Here's Othniel. Here's these. Here's this person's the answer. They're going to fix things. But they don't. Because Everyone keeps doing what's right in their own eyes. And there's failure and failure and failure. Which leads us to Samuel. He's going to be better than the judges, right? Well, yeah, he, he ruled well. And he prophesied well. And he proclaimed the truth of God well. But then when Samuel's going to die, who's going to take over? How are his sons doing? Well, sons are horrific completely mis misrepresenting what God desires and basically shaking their fist in rebellion in God's face? Is Samuel the answer? He falls short. Which takes us to Saul. Hey, we have a king. He's the biggest guy around. He's a head taller than everybody else. He's big and strong and tough, and he'll take care of these Philistine nations. And he's hiding in the baggage. And he begins more and more and more rebelling against God. He's a deliverer. He's a failed deliverer. It takes us to David, the text talks about. He's a man after God's own heart, and he is. And Saul has, claimed, has, has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And he's, and he's doing this righteously, and he's doing this righteously. And he commits adultery. And he commits murder. And he numbers the people. He's pretty shaky with his family. And he's a failed deliverer. We could go on to his son Solomon. Under Solomon, you know, the, the, the boundaries of Israel never got as big again. They were close under Manasseh, but, but under Solomon, they were the, the biggest that they, were, they had ever been. He expanded those borders greatly, and he has more wisdom. Oh, he's a great, here's the king, here's the one we've been looking for. He builds the temple, but he multiplies gold and women and horses, the very thing they've been warned not to do, the things that pull his, pulls his heart away from God as he looks to money and power, and women, which bring false gods, and he's an incomplete deliverer. We get to the Israelite and Judah kings. They fight the Philistines. They fight Egypt. They fight the Assyrians, fighting, fighting, and fighting, delivering, and failing, and sinning over, and over, and over. We get to the exile, 
and we get to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 says, hey, there's a deliverer that's coming. He's actually not even Jewish. Isaiah 45.1 says, I'm going to use my servant Cyrus. Cyrus is a king of Persia, and he calls him my Mashiach, which is the word for Messiah. He's my deliverer or anointed one. He's going to do some delivering. And if you know Ezra and Nehemiah, he, he does. He lets the people go back from exile. They're exiled in Babylon, and he lets them go back. And he even provides materials, and the new temple's getting built. You know, look at Ezra. Ezra 4, I know, has some information on that. Look, look at Ezra. Cyrus is the answer? Not fully and completely, this Gentile king. We go at the time of the Maccabees. We're in the silent years. Um, you go, I think, 167 B.C., and you've got Mattathias Maccabees and uh, the, the, I think, Seleucid dynasty at that time. You've got all these Greek people, and they're forcing the Jews to give up their religion, their belief, their following of God. It's illegal to have the Torah in your hand. You'll be killed. Antiochus Epiphanes is the leader at that time, and he says, he says hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a hog butchered and sacrificed on the altar. And Mattathias Maccabees says, no. And a guy walks up to do it. He walks up to sacrifice. And Mattathias runs up, kills him. Kills him right then and there. And he and his four or five sons say, you know, it's on. Israel, we're going we're gonna to deliver. And they do for a while. There's this guerrilla warfare. And, I mean, they're, they're going underneath elephants and stabbing them. And elephants are falling on people. And they're, having, you know, they're wiping out chariots. And they're fighting in the hills. And there's the deliver. There's what we need. Israel, we're going to be good again. But did it last? It didn't. Brother after brother is killed. There's some infighting. There's some deception. And those deliverers are done. Which takes us to John the Baptist. He's the deliverer. John chapter 1, they ask him, are you the prophet? Are you Isaiah? And John says, no. I'm just speaking on his behalf. I'm pointing to him. I'm pointing to one who is coming. I'm a voice crying in, the, crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I'm not even worthy to, to tie his shoes. One is coming who is the deliverer. So historically, this deliverer has been searched for, and people have placed their hope on this person and this person. And God has used and has placed this person and this person and this person to work as small deliverers, but they're human and they fall short and they fail, which takes us to God's wonderful provision of the true answer, the Messiah. And it starts in in verse 23, and again, Paul is preaching, he says, and he's talking about David, and he says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now to us, this audience here, we read that and we say, yep, okay, he's talking about Jesus, moving on. Paul is talking to a, a Jewish audience in a synagogue. They are looking for the Messiah. Some years have passed since Jesus lived on this earth, since he was abused and killed and put in the grave and rose three days later and then ascended to be with the Father. Some of them might have been in, in Jerusalem at that time, but they're uh, a few hundred miles away. They are distant from that. Many of them have never been there. They've heard of this probably. And here's this man who was educated and lived in Jerusalem. He was up in, in north of that area in Syria. And, and now he's coming to their synagogue. 
Here's a guy from a long ways away, and he said, you know this Jesus? And you in this synagogue, you maybe haven't heard about him much for the past 15 years? Let me tell you about him. He's connected to our history. There's promises made about him. There's eyewitnesses of him. Before he is coming, it says in verse 24, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is coming. One is coming. The sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Then Paul says, says this, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the, of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, there's some condemning going on right there, some pointing out. We are reading of him in the scriptures over and over and over. We are told that all of scripture points to the Messiah, and it does. And it was being read over and over and over, but he said, you've been blind to it. They were blind in Jerusalem, and he's going to get to the point that you are blind here. And it says, and verse 28, and they found in him, in Jesus no guilt worthy of death. And they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And then he says, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses. And Paul is saying, hey, what happened to him there you could, if you traveled in Israel and you're traveling and, and could possibly even come over here, there are those that saw him and talked with him. This is not just something that I am saying, Paul is telling them, but there are witnesses of him. But it's mainly and centrally witnessed by prophecy about him. And he gives three prophecies. It says it's written in, in the second Psalm. This is Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then it says in Isaiah 55, 3, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And then in Psalm 16, it says, you will not your, let your holy one see corruption. And then he goes into, and talks about David, and he says this about David and the Davidic covenant. David was this great deliverer. He was this great answer. The Davidic covenant was an amazing promise that God gave, but we have one that fulfilled the Davidic covenant. It says in verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God, in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. His body rotted in the grave. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And you have to think with that first century audience, what they would be thinking here. Okay, I've, I've heard about this Jesus. This is, this is a few hundred miles away. This is in another part of the world. But I'd heard this. And other people might be saying, I haven't heard any of this. But I've seen Old Testament prophecy and I too... I'm looking for the Messiah. We need the Messiah. We need the promise of the Messiah. We've got these, these Roman rulers that we hate. Yeah, we want the Messiah. But, and, and David, he served a purpose, and the Davidic per covenant served a purpose for a time, yes. But there's one that fulfilled it, that did not see corruption, that continues to live. That's what Paul is saying. Which takes us really to 1 Corinthians 15, and that'll probably be on the screen behind me, but if you want to turn there with me, you sure can. Which takes us to 1 Corinthians 15. 
starting with verse 12, talking about the resurrection. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. He's saying, there is a resurrection, there is a resurrection, there is a resurrection. And if there's not a resurrection of you believers, there is certainly no resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there was no resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's no such thing as believers. It's saying the Christian faith is resting upon the fact. It says in verse 17, and if... Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that's death, have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. And that's exactly what Paul has said earlier in Acts 13 when he's talking about David and the Davidic covenant. And it really takes us to the theology of redemption. If you think of the theology of redemption, um, it kind of fits under the larger heading of the atonement. We could talk a lot about the atonement. But if you just think of kind of the, the subset of redemption, the idea of redemption is that sinful people, all humankind sinful people, are bound in their sins. And you might argue and say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as bad as that person. And even though most of us don't say it, we all think it at times. We all compare ourselves to others. But the idea of, re of redemption, the idea that McShane pushed over and over in different poems and over and over in different sermons is that we are all broken and dead in our sins. Interestingly, it was said of McShane, um, a woman complained to John Newton. He would be the author of, of Amazing Grace. She complained to him and said, you talk often of Christ, but you don't talk often enough, she was at her deathbed, about um, sin and punishment and the afterlife of punishment. Which seems a little harsh, because if you read Amazing, you know, if you sing Amazing Grace, or if you hear, do any reading of John Newton, I think he covers that quite well. But a biographer I read said, no one could accuse McShane of not dealing enough with sin and death. And he was a young preacher, but he talked about it some people in his congregation might feel too much. He dealt with it over and over and over. Why did he beat that dead horse? Why did he say it so much? Why did he repeat it so much? Well, he was rejoicing in the fact that guilty, guilty, guilty sinners can find forgiveness. And if people don't recognize sin, they're not going to recognize their need for a Savior. And so redemption would be humans are captive to sin. And we like, you know, it's not like capture the flag captured. You are chained up, held by sin, unable to budge or move or do anything. And the idea of redemption is that Christ's death on the cross shed blood that ransomed sinners from their sin. The ransom not being paid to Satan, but truly are, we are bound in our sin and we are ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ that we are freed. That's why in Romans 8 it says you were strangers and aliens. It says you were in slavery, and now you are sons. You are heirs, it says in Romans chapter 8, because of the blood of Jesus Christ.
Mark 10, 45 says, The Son of Man gave his life as a ransom for many. And McShane rejoiced in that, and we do as well. So that would be um, the history of needing an answer. Then we were given the, here is who the answer is in the Messiah. And next we're going to see the invitation to receive the answer. Let's uh, jump in there at verse 38. Paul continues by saying, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So if you have a Jewish audience in the first century, and you would be saying what about the law of Moses? You would be saying, I am so thankful for the law of Moses. It's God's gift to us to show us what God wants. We would add to that from Galatians and elsewhere saying, hey, it was actually a schoolmaster. It was to push us and to point us and show us that we can't do enough, that we do fall short of the glory of God, that we need the Messiah. But that first century audience would be listening and listening and listening, and all of a sudden they'd be saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We, we're not freed from the law of we're, we're freed from Jesus? And interestingly, though the, the Greek word for freed there is, is the word that 98% of the time is translated in Scripture as justified. So you can read it that way as well. The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is justified from everything by which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And his audience would be on edge from that statement right there. And then he goes on, he says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And he says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe, even if one tells you. Well, what's, what's going on with that? Well, that's actually a, it's a quote from Habakkuk. Um, let me uh, turn there. It might, might pop up on the screen behind me. Um, That's a quote from Habakkuk. And I I just want to read this so our thinking's in the same place. Why would Paul be throwing this in right here? Why would you have this kind of little warning? Well, Habakkuk, in the first few verses, um, the first four verses of Habakkuk 1, Habakkuk says this, and Habakkuk would have ministered about uh, the first exile from Judah was in 605 B.C., so Habakkuk would have been 610, 615, 620, something like that. And um, Habakkuk says this, it's terrible in Judah right now, God. Israel has gone, 100, over 100 years ago, they were conquered by Assyria. They're, even, they're, they're not even in the, in the wheelhouse of what we're talking about here. But Habakkuk is saying things are atrocious in Judah at this time. And he says, God, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is saying, he's a prophet. He's saying, this is all broken. This is all terrible. Come on, God. There's sin everywhere. And here's what God answers them. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. So that's the quote, that's a quote from, from Acts that Acts gives us. And then it was, what does the very next verse say? 
For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Babylonians kind of think that. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. He goes on to say they're, they're dreaded, they're terrible. People are terrified of them. And so what is God saying here in Acts 13? He's saying, I'm willing to do whatever necessary to purge sin from my people and draw a real people to myself. And that Jewish audience would be hearing this and saying, the last time we heard this was when God was saying, if you do not get right, I'm going to use the Chaldeans to virtually wipe out about three-quarters of Judah, to deport people, to kill people, to leave a remnant. And there's an exile where they went to Babylon for 70 years. They couldn't worship in the temple. They couldn't, they couldn't serve God as they were supposed to do because they, didn't have, they couldn't sacrifice. Nothing was the same. It's the worst time in Israel's history. And in Acts 13, he says, Jesus is the answer. The law is not the answer. And I've used other people before to deliver my people and show them the right way. And that's what I'm going to do again. And the Jewish audience would be saying, who is this Jesus? I've, I've read about the Messiah. I have some understanding about the Messiah. Who is this Jesus? He's saying here that believing the law or works righteousness will justify rather than justification by faith in the Messiah is seen by God as deserving extreme measures. You know, Galatians, Galatians talks in a pretty sobering way as well. He says in 2, 15 and 16, he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. This is Paul talking to a different audience at a different time, but kind of a similar type thinking that he's sharing. He's saying, we're not Gentiles. You're, you're living in Asia Minor, um, in Acts, you're living in Asia Minor. There's lots of Gentiles around, but there's a good Jewish audience as well. So he's saying to the Galatians, hey, we, we're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, Christ being the Greek word for Messiah, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And I think if we took a poll, if we had a vote, made you go to a room and took a vote one at a time, and I said, hey, do you feel like you're justified by obeying the works of the law in the Old Testament of Scriptures? Hey, do you feel like you're justified because you're doing Law 27 or 57 or Law 613? I would guess in this group we would all say, no, none of us think that. But you know what does happen all the time in our world today that can be in this church, can be all over Owensboro, all over our world? People talking about Jesus, talking about salvation, but also talking about being justified, being forgiven and good with God because of the stuff that we do. I can't tell you how many times working at the Patino shelter where people would drop off clothing or oftentimes a big check and they would say, I hope this gets me in good with the big guy or I hope, I hope this does something for me in the future or I hope this... Now, it is a great thing to care for the homeless and the hurting, absolutely. 
But if I feel like I can write a check to this church or to the Patino shelter, if I think I can just do some stuff to make God like me, I'm doing exactly what's being warned about in Galatians, and I'm doing exactly what's being warned about in Acts 13. I'm saying by the works of the law, I can be justified. And the scripture says no man can be justified. No person can be justified. No kid can be justified in God's sight by doing the works of the law. And don't forget Babylon is kind of his warning there. This is serious. Don't forget Babylon. So that's our invitation. It's a pretty stern invitation. You get invited to things, right? We get, you get graduation invitations right now. You get invitations and they're like... Uh, Hey, you know what would be fun? You could come to this. Hey, you know what? So-and-so's graduating. You'll call them to come to their thing. There'll be food. Kind of nice little invitations. How about this invitation for the Messiah right here? This invitation that's not just to Paul's audience, but it's to us as well. It's a pretty serious invitation. It's saying there's only one way. And it's saying it's only through Jesus. And it's frankly saying, and we'll go on to say, be afraid, be very afraid if you don't respond to this invitation because God is serious about his covenant people. So that's our invitation to receive. And then we have some responses. It's always interesting to see the response. You know, if you get invitations to graduation, you know, hey, come to Henry's graduation. You know, maybe there's some, you know, we're supposed to, our, you know, we're supposed to let them know. You know, hey, there's this graduation over here. We're supposed to let them know. Okay, what are some responses to this stern invitation from, from God through Paul? What are some responses that we have? Well, it's uh, one group says, tell me more. Another group says, I disagree. I'll even revile you. Another group says, we believe. And the last group says, we're going to persecute you. We're going to come after you. So what are these responses? And I think the healthy question for us to ask in this group is, who am I? Which response is mine? Because in this room, every response, these are your only options. What response am I to the Messiah? It says in verse 42, so they go out. This is, this is Paul and Barnabas. They go out. Um, they left the synagogue. It's on a Saturday, the Sabbath. And the first group of people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Hey, you've got to come back. I want to hear more. And it says even after the meeting of the synagogue, the synagogue broke up. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. They were saying, I want to hear more. I, I know about Babylon. I want to hear more. Is this really the Messiah? I've, I've heard about what happened in Jerusalem. I, we've heard some things, but... I, I want to hear more because my thought of the Messiah was that he's going to fix everything and get rid of these Romans, and I haven't seen that. What is happening? I want to hear more. So it may or may not, depending on the person, be true belief, but tell us more. And if this is you, I will tell you this. We would love to have a Bible study with you. We would love to meet with you. Man, woman, couple, child, teenager. I, I bet half the people in this church, if you said, I... I I would like to know more. People would love to sit down and say, here's how you can know Jesus. Here you, here's how you can know forgiveness. Here is how those who are weary and heavy laden can place their burden on Jesus Christ, the Lord of all creation. So, so hear me now and hear me for the next 40 years. I would love to sit down and talk with you and, and others here as well. 
And please come and talk to me if this is you. Would love that. I'd also say keep coming to church. Um, tremendous teaching from Pastor Mark, Bible studies from a variety of people. Keep coming to church. Keep, keep trying to understand and keep looking for more understanding. The second group disagreed. Um, it says in 44, the next Sabbath, so a week has passed, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And it's a, it's a mostly Gentile city, so a lot of non-Jews and non-proselytes, non-followers of God are there. And so it's like the Gentile neighbors and friends and co-workers are showing up. And there wasn't as much mixing of that as we might think. But they've heard things, and they're saying, hey, what is the truth of this? I, I want to know more. I want to know more. Or I disagree, or I heartily disagree. It says, when the Jews saw these crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. But they spoke out boldly, saying, it's necessary that the word of the Lord be spoken first to you, Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. So you talk about seriousness. He's saying those that don't believe will not receive eternal life. There is no hope of heaven. There is no hope of resurrected body and being with Jesus. There is no hope of enjoying and rejoicing in the new heaven and new earth. There's only the anticipation of a sinless existence away from God in eternal punishment. You're unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. The Lord has commanded us. He quotes from Isaiah 49. You've made a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So that'd be the second one, those that disagree. The third group is belief. It says in 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the, Lord was, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the entire region. People were saying, I believe, I trust. I might not understand every detail. I'm going to learn more. I'm not just going to say, oh yeah, Oh, yeah, I believe a little. They were saying, I rejoice that this is what God has done, and I want to know him more. I understand that he forgives me and loves me. Much of the wording is similar to Acts 16, just a couple chapters after us, when the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answers him and says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And the same is true of your household your mother-in-law that's living over here, your kids, if you have servants in your house, co-workers, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And that's true of today. It was true 2,000 years ago. And then the last group took it a step farther from disagreeing and reviling. There was persecution. It says, um, the Jews incited devout women of the high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They threw them out, and we can say, no, 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 I don't want this to be part of it, but Romans 8 that I've referenced already says, hey, if you're, if, uh, if you're children, then heirs, provided we suffer with him, and we will be glorified with him as well. And I would encourage us, put yourself in Paul and Barnabas' shoes right here. And you're thinking, okay, you shared, you shared this message, you gave history, and you gave the, the answer and you gave the offer, and you had different, different responses to it. And you think, hey, people are believing, and people are believing. 
praise the Lord, and we're having success, and look at what Lord, the Lord is doing. Again, this is the first missionary journey. This is not nearly as long as the other missionary journeys, the second and the third. And wow, look at what's happening. They're, they're driven out of the city. They go to Iconium, which is 90 miles away as their next preaching spot. Is it discouragement? Is it sadness? Thinking, I failed, I didn't get God's work done. It's not what they thought. I think they understand God, understood God's sovereignty, that as many were appointed to eternal life believed. I think they kept sharing the gospel. It says in 51, they didn't just run back home and say, "Uh, I gave it a shot. What does it happen in 51? They shook off the dust from their feet against them and they went out to Iconium. 90 miles away they traveled. And lastly, they were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Not what we typically think of when you face people kicking you out of town, screaming at you. A few people have come to Christ and the rest of them are running you out of town. What does it say in 52? And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Those who came to Christ were filled with joy. Paul and Barnabas were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. This reminds me a little bit of, of our stalwart missionaries that we support as a church. And it's been a joy to me to get to know some of them better and better, but I don't know them as well as many of you. But I love on Wednesday nights, we always pray for a different missionary and, and, and oftentimes on Sunday mornings as well. But we have different focuses each week. And, you know, the Baldwins are one that are usually on the Wednesday night that I lead. And so I pray for them at a deeper level than I would if I didn't know details about their life. And I hear about the Baldwins, I'd say, oh, struggling with a health thing here. Lord, uphold them. Struggling with some things within leadership that's outside of their missions group that makes it harder to do missions work. And I think, oh, Lord, take that away. But I think if they're stalwart, I'm going to trust in the Lord. I think of the Amadis and some of the health things. And are we going to get a visa? I want to share the gospel in Ireland, but it's so difficult. I think of the dames in North Africa wanting the word to go forth in such a difficult area. And there's financial challenges and some, some leadership challenges and just the cultural challenges that would be there. But they understand God's sovereignty and they keep sharing the gospel and they're filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And so my question for us, for everybody in this room, what is my response to the plan of redemption? We might want to put our hope in little redeemers. We might want to put our hope in little deliverers. Well, this guy will fix things. We'll have a church with a perfect pastor. Nope. We'll, we'll go over here, I'll take this job, and things will be better. And it might, or it might not. We won't be around, well, these Christians hurt my feelings, so I'm going to go just hang out with these. Or I'm gonna, and we go around, and we try to find these human things that are going to fix things, but nothing fixes outside of Jesus Christ. It's the only answer. We need to rejoice and keep on sharing. We need to trust in God's sovereignty. And like Paul and Barnabas and these disciples, regardless of circumstances, Robert Murray McShane understood that. He has this amazing ministry. And he's a young man. He's 29 years old. And uh, he's a big uh, David Brainerd fan. He lives, you know, 40 years, 50 years after the time of David Brainerd. He likes Jonathan Edwards, reads them a lot. They have a lot in their writing, those of you that read pretty broadly. You know, they have a lot in their writing about, you know, burn up for God. Don't waste any moments. You know, health, who cares? Let's go. Follow Jesus. You know, why serve him for 14 hours today if we can do 16 or 18 
Why are you sleeping? Let's go. McShane had some of that going on. He deeply wanted the world to be impacted for Christ. He's in his late, late 20s, and uh, he gets the flu. Might be typhus, I don't know. And he's dead right around his 30th birthday. And you think, here's this guy who is extremely gifted. He's being used abundantly. They had kind of a mini great awakening inside their own church there in Scotland. And, he, and he's dead. Wait, wait, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Things are supposed to be differently than this. He's supposed to be the guy that preaches for 60 years and influences the world for Christ. And God chose to take him home. What's going on right there? He understood redemption. He understood the answer. And he followed him. And if I could read in closing just a couple couple more stanzas of this song that he wrote. Let me read stanza three, and then um, I'll read stanza five, and then I'll be done. It says, when I stand before the throne, this is final redemption, when I stand before the throne dressed in beauty not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart. He knows here on earth, sin falls short, sin falls short. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we fall short of the glory of God every single day of our life. We sin, we are born in bondage, and we live in bondage until we are freed by the redemption of the Savior. Lord, we sinfully look for all kinds of different answers. This person's going to fix it, that person's going to fix it, and Israel did the same thing, and we do the same thing today over and over. Jesus Christ, we recognize you as the Redeemer, our rock and our Redeemer. And in you we rest and trust and have our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and respond.